Welcome to Outspoken Voices, a podcast by and for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer parents, people with LGBTQ parents, future parents, and everyone else who is part of our family journeys. I'm your host, Emily McGranahan, and I am the Director of Family Engagement with Family Equality Council. Each person has their own path to parenthood. No two family stories are the same, but LGBTQ families have unique experiences, and sometimes finding community within queer spaces is what we need. I found community as a teen when I met other queer spawn. As I think about my own path to parenthood someday, I can easily say that I have a lot of questions and worries. So I never had a dad growing up, so the thought of my children having a dad and my own concept of what fatherhood means to me and and to my partner is really kind of strange to me and feels kind of unclear and it's kind of hard to imagine. And I know I'm not alone in having questions and seeking community. So with me today are two dads who have shared some of their personal journeys in blogs and articles and podcasts and beyond. And one is a brand new dad and the other has two little ones and is sort of the veteran parent here. So with me today, I have Chris, who is a researcher, dog dad of five, and brand new dad. He blogs about his trans dad experience at the transdad.com. And Robbie is a work-at-home dad living with his wife and two young children in Boston. He is a co-organizer of the Boston Dads Group and founded Boston Babies Clothing Swaps, a monthly event that draws 150 families. He's the author of the best-selling business book, Croissants versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences. Uh, his weekly podcast, On the Schmooze, is a mix of interviews with leaders and networking tips. So welcome, Chris and Robbie. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. I'm going to start with a question that I ask all the guests. Who is in your family and how was it formed? Robbie, would you kick us off? Absolutely. So my immediate family is myself. Um, I identify as a queer trans dad and my wife, who is a queer cis mom. Um, And we have two little ones who are two years apart, almost to the day, one and three years old. Awesome. And Chris, who is in your family and how was it formed? It is me. I am a queer trans dad as well. My wife is a queer cis mom as well and our brand new little baby she'll be three weeks on thursday and five dogs my gosh we had actually originally tried to schedule this so that it was sort of a impending parenthood for you chris uh, and your little one just you know our scheduling didn't work out and the little one didn't want to wait right yeah he meet us (laughs) Awesome. So what has then your journey to parenthood been like? When and how did you decide on a particular path to parenthood? Well, you know, um, I had thought until recently that parenthood wasn't something that I had been longing for and that it only came to be after I met the right person. And then I discovered a journal entry from a workshop that I was in where I was describing the life that I wanted to have 10 years from then which is about now. And it included being a parent to two children. So that was news to me. (laughs) Um, It was kind of cool to find that, but I really do think it 
really for me did hinge on meeting the person that I would want to co-parent with. And um, since my sperm count is non-existent, <laughs> we definitely went the route of a sperm donor. Um, and that's an interesting experience I'm happy to talk about. And then um, we were really fortunate my wife got pregnant uh, twice with two healthy little babies. And um, the interesting part about that is that the second one could have been the firstborn because they were um, from the same like set of embryos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so science is super interesting in that way. And um, we just feel really lucky to be in the Boston area. Massachusetts covers IVF. We did try... Um, to do IUI and uh, six times, which is six months. It's a very expensive process, but then we were really fortunate that that IVF kicked in uh, for our insurance, and that was a process that worked for us. Okay, and Chris, what has your journey been, and how did you decide on your particular path to parenthood with your partner? Well, I've always wanted to be a parent, even before I wanted to get married. I didn't think I would have a partner, I thought I would just be a single parent. But then I found my wife and she wanted to, she wasn't ready to, have, to be a parent. And then later on, we decided that we both wanted to have kids. Um, but we went the known donor route. So we know our donor and we did an at-home insemination. Yeah, that the, so I have a sperm donor like myself and hearing my mom's stories about, you know, many, many moons ago, what that process was like is so different from today. And, you know, and I think in a lot of really good ways, one of those being, you know, depending on where you are and depending on, you know, jobs often, unfortunately, having some of that financial like insurance kicking in. And then also knowing that sometimes that just does not happen for a lot of folks. How much did sort of like financial planning factor in some of those into some of your decisions there? Uh, well, I will say that my wife, um, before we started dating, we were already friends for uh, about a year and a half. And in that time, she was actually talking very seriously about leaving the Boston area to travel the world with the money she had saved. <laughs> and then we fell in love and she didn't do that plan. And that's the money that led to us being able to move forward with this parenting journey because uh a $1,000 a month to acquire sperm and go to the doctor's office, six months of doing that without having a child. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, again, if IVF didn't kick in, I think, I don't know that we'd be parents right now. And it's not something that's universally accessible. So I feel really fortunate. And I, I tease her all the time that, you know, this is, this is the lively, worldwide tour that she ended up with was to active children. And Chris, like did, you know, how did some of that factor in some of your choices in going um, the known donor route or choosing biological children as, as opposed to other options? Right. We went that route just because it was a lot cheaper. And mm -hmm. So it only took us three months, luckily. Um, but yeah, we, we went that route because we, it wasn't covered under insurance and it was what was easiest for us at the time. Mm -hmm. So Chris, you've got an almost three week old. Uh, so what are some of the things that you've been enjoying the most or some of the things that you've, you know, throughout this process been most excited about? I enjoy her cuddles the most. <laughs> I never want to put her down. <laughs> um, 
the biggest thing was watching her be born. It was just the most beautiful experience I've ever seen. Like just watching the whole thing, I started crying almost instantly. And then I saw her wedding pass before my eyes. And yeah, it's it's just beautiful. And and Robbie, what are some of your favorite things about being a dad of the three and a one year old? Well, um, one, I love that he actually calls me Papa. And originally, I thought I was going to be Daddy. And somewhere along the line, when he started talking, my older, you know, three-year-old started saying Papa with a with a French accent, actually, Papa, <laughs> for a while. Um, and so it's just seeing him like now, now in a very emotional roller coaster of three-year-old existence, where he's. You know, he says he doesn't want something and he doesn't want it. No, he doesn't want it. Yes, he doesn't want it. He does. He does. He definitely does. No, he doesn't. And it's so like, just to kind of be there for him. And and the one-year-old is still all cuddles and has, you know, starting walking and, and is like on the verge of talking. And so I just, I think just the fact that I've been able to be home with them has been a phenomenal experience. The The toddler is now in preschool, but currently only for a few hours a day. Um, he had been in there for like a full day for a little, for a couple months, but, um, we, both my wife and I are now working at home for most of the day. And it's just like incredible to have that much time with your children. Yeah. The, we are not residing in a country that is kind to people giving birth or even bringing new children into the family. Mm-hmm. So thinking about then that sort of transition from your experiences within LGBTQ community as someone without children and then as a parent. And did you find that then throughout the pregnancy experience, were, were there queer friendly spaces? Were there queer specific spaces? You know, how, how was that as an experience? Um, that I'm in a couple of like Facebook groups and I think that's the main thing that we found. Mm. I, I think that's about it. I tried doing the dad groups and a lot of them are just let's go meet for poker and I'm more you know (laughs) I want to learn about being a dad and all this so it's something that we're definitely still working on and you know building that community and gaining that yeah and Robbie it's how's your experience because you have been really involved with dad groups and you know how what are those spaces like are they integrated with your sort of LGBTQ family spaces, or do you also seek out separate LGBTQ sort of spaces as well? Well, the um, Boston Dads Group is part of City Dads Group, which is a national organization that manages uh, through volunteers, like 40 some odd cities uh, that have a group. And they're a very decisively progressive community. So when they're talking about like, who's going to organize groups, they, if someone's not sort of following that culture, they they won't stay running a group. So I didn't know all of that when I got started. What I discovered them was actually uh, similar to what Chris just said. I was like, I wanna I wanna know more about being a dad. Like I don't I don't take on challenges that I can't like succeed at. <laughs> and here's a challenge that I I can't like step away from, but I also don't know anything about. So I was trying to just meet people with kids my kids' age. And so before my son was even born, I actually went to my first Boston Dads group and I found them through a podcast. Um, and the Modern Dads podcast is put on by the two, two dads that run City Dads group. Um, I, I was like, oh, that's cool. I want to reach out. And I knew that 
having community was going to be really important to me. It happened that the weekly group that I was running, and I just recently stopped doing this on a regular basis, there was several queer dads <laughs> who came. And so it, in, in an interesting way, I was able to blur that and um, get to know, or re-actually, some of people I already knew, reconnect. Um, I've also made attempts to like host uh, events for queer families and we've, we've, my wife and I have done some of that here and there. Boston has a pretty active and engaged queer community and a queer family community. So it's just a matter of tapping into it and sometimes you know, hosting things ourselves. The route we ended up taking was to really organize these swaps, which again, I started a Facebook group before my son was born to meet parents with kids my kid's age. When he was five weeks old, we started hosting a swap. And those seven families now, like, you know, three years later, we now have 150. Actually, the one coming up this week has 175, 178 families RSVP'd, um, and we're a week away. So, wow. and within that, there's a lot of queer families that come. And it's been really fun to sort of see that overlap as well. Um, seeing some of the local folks that I know kind of all hanging out, you know, in this new space. And these are people that I used to see at the, you know, clubs <laughs> 15 years ago. And now we're all hanging out at the baby clothing swap on a Saturday morning. So, so it's been less about like actively seeking. It's more like there's a lot of opportunities around us. There's a lot of queer Jewish um, family groups as well. And so just been tapping into different cultures and different community spaces. It's been, it's, it's fantastic to live here. And how have you been able to find some of those groups? Like Chris, if you're, if someone's like looking for a trans dad Facebook group, I know some groups are private. Like how do you go about finding that? Um, And similarly, Robbie, then how with uh, the city dads group and the Boston dads, you know, how, how do folks find you? So if there are people out there seeking community, you know, what did you use or what would you recommend people do in order to find these sort of spaces? I go and I just type in searches into Facebook and I just search through everything and then start reading them. And then once I actually get into the group, then I go through and see how active active it is and see if it's something that I'm actually interested in. Um, I think that's another thing is a lot of those groups are inactive. There's, you know, people in them, but they're, they're not really there. Yeah. I found some of the same thing. I, I probably in eight to 10 groups for, trans slash f to m slash masculine of center dads papas (laughs) parents um groups but very few of them have any sort of regular activity and i think it's hard because then if you post you're not already friends with people they may not even see it but what you could do is as connect with the organizers of those groups because clearly they had an interest in getting started and then the City Dads Group, um, I highly recommend it, citydadsgroup.com. But I've written some blog posts for City Dads, uh, which is probably what Emily came across, talking about my experience being a queer trans dad and trying to raise you know, children in a diverse world and things like that. So, so they're not just like in name only inclusive, like they really were actively giving me a platform to talk about um, my life and my family. And I think anybody who's near one should check it out. And, you know, it depends on who's in the group, but I I think you're going to find people you like. Yeah. Robbie, thinking back to, you know, when you were on the cusp of becoming a parent, are there things that looking back, you're like, I can't believe I was worried about X. 
uh, because once the kid came, like that went out the door and I just like didn't worry about that anymore. You know, there are things that you, uh, you know, really thought a lot about that really changed dramatically once kiddos were growing up or once kiddos were a reality? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think that I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I really, I wanted to be prepared. I read a lot of books. I read books on philosophy of parenting. I read a, a really interesting book called Bringing Up Baby, which is about a American mom raising her kids in France. And it was like, interesting to think about, oh, we don't have to just assume children do a certain thing because that's what, how we are in America. But I think what has transpired is that my approach was to be more of like a carpenter where everything was exact and precise and that I could imagine that how I built things is how the child would end up. And it's really more about being a gardener. And this is actually a reference to a book that I just learned about, about parenting styles. And, you know, parents generally think of themselves as carpenters with an exact, you know, blueprint. And gardeners know that, you know, how you have all your plans are really based on a lot of um, a lot of factors you can't control, and that's parenting. Um, you just kind of go with it, and so I think I now trust myself much more to kind of have a gut instinct around what my child needs for me, and often that means nothing. Like they just need to kind of like be on their own, and sometimes that's not intervening is actually sometimes the best way to be. So. I wouldn't have thought that going in. So there's a lot of it's been about learning to have more patience with myself and just figure out how to be like loving when they're having a meltdown because he's three, you know, like um, the one-year-old doesn't have words yet. So how can he tell me he has a burp? Like it's, (laughs) you just kind of realize that you're there for them. And that love is just so instantaneous. I'm sure Chris has experienced it, right? It's like, it, there's no, lapse of time it happens right away and only gets better yeah chris you know you've got three weeks under your belt what had been some of your you know been, been most going through your mind in the uh, lead up to the birth of your kiddo and now you know has that changed at all i think the main thing going into it is wanting to be the perfect parent wanting to make sure everything is perfect wanting to make sure everything in the house is perfect and clearly she had a different different idea because she came four weeks early so I couldn't get everything done but they don't care as long as you feed them and you love them you don't have to be perfect nothing needs to be perfect and everyone starts off not knowing what they're doing so there's no perfect parent (laughs) and I think that's the biggest biggest thing that I've learned so far yeah I'm really curious you know you're you've both of you have used social media to some degree to be you know, the internet, sharing your story, Chris, on your blog, and, you know, Robbie, uh, connecting with a lot of other parents online. Where do you, where is social media? Did that kind of play in any of your, you know, experiences or, you know, decisions or anything like that through your journeys? Yeah, it is something we we talked about as a family. I have shared our, our family photos very publicly for different purposes. We, we have a private Facebook group that's uh, just for family updates. And so we're, you know, that's a selective group of people. And that's where like all the really silly videos go and the flurry of photos. But that doesn't mean that I've sheltered my children. I just think that I, I am very thoughtful. Like everything I put online is public. I don't really have a private, you know, section of my page. 
So I assume that I'm going to put the same level of thought and respect into what I post about my children. So, you know, no, no nudity photos, uh, nothing that would be embarrassing to them when they're 13, you know, things like that. Um, they've, they've got to look good. If it's silly and it's questionable, it goes into that little private group for just like a, a couple of dozen family <laughs> that are like watching from home. So in that sense, we've been thoughtful, but we are an out and proud queer family. Um, you know, pride in our household is a holiday. You know, it's, it's celebrated. My son, um, a year or so ago, I taught him the phrase, fight for transgender rights. And every now and again, he just erupts into saying that. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's sort of part of our everyday. I don't, I, there's never going to be a big reveal for my kids about me being trans. It's going to be a slow understanding of what it is and what it means, but, but not a, like a, oh, wait, I didn't know that. They just maybe didn't have language. They didn't quite get it. But as, as appropriate, they're going to keep figuring it out. Yeah. And, and Chris, what, where has social media then been in some of your, your experience now too? Yeah. Well, I started the blog because I'm someone who is always thinking about something and something else and then something else after that. So it's just a place to write all that stuff down. And then especially with our um, process of trying to conceive and then going from there, I just wanted to get our story out there and show that it is possible and you can take that step if you're ready and you don't need to wait to do it. You can start your family now. Um, and it's just grown. Like I recently started interviewing other families just so we can gain more awareness on what it takes to actually build a family. Um, so I'm pretty open about everything online, but she will know from day one, she'll know that she has a trans dad and pride's going to be the same way with us. It's, it's nothing that we're ever going to hide. Yeah. And how did or did your trans identity then come into play when you were making some of those decisions about uh, general parenting decisions or coming up with a birth plan or parenting classes, you know, which hospital you were going to go to, like all of those pieces, did that impact, you know, the decisions you made together as a, as a family? I think that that did impact a lot, especially from choosing a donor because I wanted to choose somebody who knew, you know, that their sperm was going to a trans guy and his wife. And, you know, not just a cis couple that way. It was, it was something that they didn't want then they're not going to come back years later on after they find out and try to, you know, break up part of family. Um, and then we went with a midwife just because they were very open about it. And it was just a better experience for us. Um, and the hospital we went to has been great as well. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's really interesting. Sets like, I'm thinking about, you know, the resources I'll be linking to, you know, and the website with this episode. And that's like exactly it. Robbie, did, you, did that come into play in your choices and also your wife as a, a queer identifying person as well? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things is that my wife and I probably um, are not perceived as queer on a regular basis. Um, I feel like I'm perceived as queer when I'm not with her more uh, then she's necessarily perceived as queer, although she has a cute haircut now. So now I think she looks more queer and she likes it. Um, so it's important for us to find ways to be out, but she also doesn't want to walk around using my trans identity as a way to like out 
her queerness. And so I usually just, you know, bring it up in a casual way. So I remember we were at the IVF doctor's office to start having a conversation about that process. And they wanted to understand like what the diagnosis was that led to us, you know, using IVF. And I said, um, oh, low sperm, as in like none. And they were like, oh, you try this, you try that. I was like, no, 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 you're misunderstanding me. I'm, I'm trans. And she was like, oh, got it. And she sort of laughed. And so for me, it's like I use humor. I'm like, oh, the thing, the thing maybe I, I didn't sort of mention that sort of makes all this make sense. Again, being in Boston, uh, we live really close to the time to Fenway Health, which is a fantastic LGBT health resource, and they refer to the area hospitals. So we actually had our children born in two different local hospitals, and both were really good experiences. The one time I think it did play in about my being trans and us being a queer family was actually choosing a doula. The first time around, we did have a, a doula at the birth and a postpartum doula, and it was really important to find someone who was queer. And we didn't even know that that was a thing that we needed until we were in the process of choosing. And there was just like a a moment where we met like seven people in one evening. And the last person was this woman that we were, we had like such a short conversation, but it just was like, Oh yeah, you get us. That's great. Like that's important because you're in a really vulnerable place. Um, you're in a hospital, you're worrying about like how things are going to go. And so you definitely want an advocate and who, who gets you as a family. So I think in that sense, it, it did matter to us. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about your other identities that you hold, um, how does that do other identities or how do you, you know, see other identities really factoring into your other, your parent identity and that sort of parent hat that you wear? Um, how have those intersections really come into play or, you know, what are you sort of anticipating in the future? Sure. Um, I, uh, I think that it, a lot of plays in all the time. I mean, the identities that come to mind when I think about this is being a feminist and what that means to, you know, raising um, two kids that are, you know, were identified as boys at birth um, and I, I didn't figure out that I was a boy until I was in like my late twenties. So, you know, I, I didn't tell my parents until then at least. Um, so I'm, I'm leaving it open, but I also know that they're going to be raised as presumably straight, presumably cis men, um, and that they're getting plenty of messages about what that means. And so we've audited our books to make sure that there's a diversity of stories and, um, lots of, you know, women, uh, characters taking the lead and people of color, um, the other identity it makes me think of is like my desire to like use my whiteness for racial justice. And so again, like thinking about what I'm teaching um, these two white kids about life and um, what's unjust in our world. And so it's a huge social experiment having children. My wife and I both have sociology uh, backgrounds and having kids is like the ultimate experiment. You don't know for a long time, like 25 years, like how it all turns out. But you can pour a lot of good into it and do your best. And I think for us, you know, being um, open about these conversations and as they get older, it's going to get more complex as the world continues to be a dark and scary place. And we're trying to help explain to our children what that means, but we're up for that challenge. And I think that's the way that my other identities sort of intersect with being a parent. 
Thanks. And how about you, Chris, if you want to share? I think uh, the the big thing was uh, in the beginning, we decided we didn't want to know the sex of the baby. Um, we decided for it to be a surprise at birth. And then um, thinking about it, we were trying to figure out if we wanted to go gender neutral parenting or, you know, to raise them as the sex they were given at birth and then just let them decide once they get there. Um, because I didn't want to push my trans identity onto our child, but I also didn't want to push push the opposite way. So it's, it, yeah, you, you get stuck in that, that middle part. So we just decided that we're going to raise her um, as what she was given at birth and then she's going to be very open-minded. So hopefully she can trust us enough to tell us one way or the other once she's old enough to get there. Did you have any uh, questions for one another? One of the things that um, I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm, I'm curious if Chris comes across it himself, I haven't found any good books about trans dads. And there are lots of resources around like, um, you know, like The Princess Boy is a great book to sort of explain like, gender fluidity to children. And children don't need that explained. They already get that. <laughs> they are gender fluid. We're the ones who are sticking them in boxes. And, and you know, there's, there's good resources for that. And there's some good resources for children, but I haven't found any for trans dads. And I also haven't really found any for young boys that are, I, don't, I guess for lack of a better word, feminists and, you know, or just like doing good in the world, not just like being rough and tumble in the book. And I feel like, you know, I'd like, I'd like to see some more examples of like the kind of world I want my sons to live in. Um, and I want to be able to explain me in a context that they can understand. Yeah, I agree. I haven't been able to find anything. I was actually thinking of writing a book for her about her trans dad so she can understand it a little better. I'll buy a copy. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that that's a big piece of it. My wife's talked about maybe, you know, even creating like photo books, like really simple things, but yeah, it just kind of goes with trying to help them understand things and, be proud of their family. I mean, Heather has two mommies is like 25 years old or something. Um, and it feels like we, with all of the trans people that are having children these days, like we deserve to have um, trans moms and trans dad like books out there. And I know part of the answer is we should start creating it ourselves. I have one too many projects probably already on my plate, but I do hope that people listening take that challenge and start creating some content that they could share about their own lives. Yeah. One book that I like really, really warmed my heart when I did get to read it was Introducing Teddy, which is written by Jessica Walton, who's in Australia. And Jessica, uh, her, her dad transitioned and she didn't have resources. She was looking for resources and she couldn't find resources then for her children to explain, you know, what the changes are that were happening and, you know, to their grandparent. And so she wrote this really, really sweet book about uh, like teddy bear transitioning and it is beautiful and just like, you know, really just kind of explain, you know, it was great for kids and um, I really loved that, but it's still different than, you know, what you hear, I, I definitely remember all the time having books that were either, you know, explaining and about LGBTQ families, which increasingly there's more and more and books that just like 
have LGBTQ characters in them and they're just like doing like typical family things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's definitely that sort of two-sided, you know, there's benefits to both. Uh, and I think we need more of both really. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it just feels like um, my children are never going to be able to imagine me not being me. So a, it's less about a book about transition because in their eyes, that's not, it's not a transition for them. Um, I've been their papa since they were born. Like that's all they know. So it is interesting to think about like what a family needs, depending on where that parent is in that journey themselves. Um, And if they're non-binary, what that looks like, if they're not planning to have surgery, you know, there's there's a lot of things that sort of factor in to how a child might um, be in the world. I, one of the things um, I can share actually with Chris is that um, we have been trying to teach our toddler the difference between private and public. And part of that is that I want him to also understand the difference between private and secret. Um, because it's not a secret that I'm trans, but it's not that I want him to walk into school <laughs> and go up to everyone and announce it. You know, like um, when he has language for like anatomy i don't want it to be like the first thing he blurts out you know so um but the way we started teaching that was (laughs) this is gonna sound so funny he can pick his nose only in private and private is in his in his bed and in the car (laughs) (laughs) and i if he does it in front of me oh no 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 you're in public i can see you and i I don't want to see that and he goes oh yeah you're right and he stops (laughs) And I'm like, wow, it's sinking in. And I just think like, start with something. I'm like, yeah, everyone does that. No one talks about it. No one does it in front of each other. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to see it. That's private. And so I just, I want him to have an understanding about those terms because I don't want me being trans to ever be a secret that he has to hold and hide. Um, Children don't always understand those lines. Yeah. But I love that. Good to know, parents. Um, They will understand it in terms of boogers if you just yes. give it on a if on some sort of booger scale <laughs> you'll get it yep <laughs> that's great um, any other than advice for prospective uh, or current trans dads or parents out there any sort of final thoughts my big thing is everyone warned you about sleep like sleep is going to be the worst thing and this weird thing happens where you just go into autopilot and sleep isn't even that bad because you just, you just do it. Like you just learn, like your body is just used to it. You just go. So it's not that bad. You, you just, you're, you're going to be a parent and you're going to be a great parent and sleep's just another thing that you're going to be able to surpass and get used to not having. You can surpass sleep. I like, <laughs> I want to say like, that's great. Question mark. <laughs> well, along those lines, that's a short, like it's called The Longest Shortest Time, which is also the name of a really good podcast about this time period um, for a reason, because it, it takes forever to get through where you are right now, Chris, but it also doesn't last very long. Um, I actually going into this, what I said to my wife before we had our first child, I said, you know, we're going to be so tired that we're going to be le- like, we're probably going to be as tired as people are when they're legally drunk. Like we're basically going to be wasted. And so we should not take offense or get into fights. So whenever we got tense in those moments, because you're so tired, you can't, your brain's not functioning. 
I would just look at her and be like, oh my God, we're so drunk. And she's like, okay, right, right. I love you. I'm like, I love you too. And so it's like, <laughs> like we're, we're just going to figure this out one step at a time. Um, but I think that the other thing is like how fast things do change. And I meet people with 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 25-year-olds and they're all like, blink and you're going to be here. And I I actually do believe that because I can't remember the last three years just don't seem like it's been three years. It's been so quick. And the only reason I know the passage of time is because the children are in my life. Like, I don't think I look that different, a few more gray hairs, but not that much. And so I think, um, yeah, like, you know, appreciate each stage. Like I kept our first child, there was a lot of rushing like wanting to get to the next stage with them. And I think the second child, it's been much more relaxed, like enjoy each stage. And like, we know he'll eventually walk. We know he'll eventually talk. We'll know eventually go to the bathroom on his own. Like all these things that you're like trying to get to, trying to get to, he'll get to, it's fine. Like appreciate it. And I wish that I had just a little more of that patience the first time around. And that's what I would want to offer to people listening. Thank you both. So Chris and Robbie, uh, where can folks find you if they want to read, you know, more about you or kind of connect with you on social media? Um, Chris, how can folks find you? Uh, thetransdad.com or any social media is the trans dad. And Robbie? So I am available at robbysamuels.com. I am a um, keynote speaker and a relationship-based business strategist. So you'll find more about me. And I am at Robbie Samuels on all social. And I would love people to reach out and say hello. Again, thank you for joining us today. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Outspoken Voices. You can find Outspoken Voices on our website, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Family Equality Council at familyequality.org and on Facebook and Instagram at Family Equality and on Twitter at Family underscore Equality. Until next time, remember that love, justice, family, and equality is what brings our families together.